Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Lindsay Stern. And I'm Viveka Morris. We're your hosts, and we're very excited about the interview we're bringing you today about humanity's closest living relative, the bonobo, an egalitarian, matriarchal cousin of the chimp, sometimes known as the make-love-not-war ape. If you travel to Des Moines, Iowa, and drive about 20 minutes southeast of the city center, you'll find a large, unassuming cement complex with fenced-in grounds. You'd never know it, but inside are five bonobos, including the world-famous 38-year-old Kanzi, thought to be the only remaining non-human ape capable of communicating verbally with humans. Not only have these apes been shown to understand thousands of English words, but they're also capable of expressing wishes, plans, and opinions by pointing to pictograms developed by our guest, Dr. Sue Savage-Rumba, as part of her extraordinarily ambitious, groundbreaking 30-year investigation into their minds. The investigation has been polarizing among people who study language and has generated conflict among researchers involved in recent years. Sue Savage-Rumbaugh is a primatologist who has received global recognition for her contributions to the field of animal cognition and psychology. She is the author or co-author of over 180 scientific articles and of eight books, including Language Comprehension in Ape and Child, Kanzi, The Ape at the Brink of the Human Mind, and the forthcoming Dialogues on the Human Ape with Laurent Dubray. Her numerous awards include honorary doctorates from the University of Chicago and Missouri State University, recognition from Time Magazine as one of the world's 100 most influential people in 2011, and selection by the Millennium Project as the author of one of the 100 most influential works in cognitive science in the 20th century. She currently teaches at Missouri State University and serves as president of the Bonobo Hope Initiative. Dr. Savage Rumbaugh, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Well, I'm just so happy to be here. So we're curious, when did you first see or encounter a non-human primate, and what catalyzed your interest in them? When I was uh, five years old, I went to the St. Louis Zoo, and I saw what would now not be allowed to be on stage, a group of uh, about 20 chimpanzees that had been trained in really what became a world-famous chimp show. And these chimps could ride motorcycles. They could ride motorcycles through a a hoop of flame. They could walk on stilts. They could sit down at a table and eat. And it was just an amazing act. I also saw a lion and tiger act in which the lions and tigers all sat on cubes and the lion trainer had a whip and would signal to the different Uh, lions what they were supposed to do, the lions and the tigers. And as a child, I was fascinated by the difference in those two shows. And I I really wanted to understand uh, why the chimps were able, if they were animals, to be doing all these complex things while the tigers could jump through hoops and they could sit on their cubes they certainly didn't seem to have the understanding of what they were doing that the chimpanzees had. And I remember asking my dad to let me go behind the stages and talk to the people who ran the show. And though I was very young, I asked them the question, do the chimps really know what they're doing? And how do you teach them these things? And they said, yes, they know what they're doing, and we just teach them by showing them. We show them how to ride a motorcycle. We show them how to walk on stilts. And I said, and you show them how to sit down at the table and eat? And they said, yes, they just pick all these things up from us. And then a chimp walked bipedally in with a tray of food and put it down on the table for us to eat and walked out. And they said, this is just how the chimps live. And some of them were sitting around in cages, but they they didn't seem to be unhappy. That just seemed to be where they went and sat for a while after the show. And I remember just being astonished, and uh, I think that set my kind of desire to understand great apes for the rest of my life. And what kind of research was going on 
uh, if at all, at that time within the scientific community on great apes. Well, Robert Yerkes would have had his lab in Orange Park up and running at that time, and he certainly was the first major scientist. I, I think we should mention Kohler, who worked uh, in Russia, but Robert Yerkes was the first one who really put a lab together and attempted to understand ape intelligence. And, of course, he was interested in what apes did in the wild, but they hadn't been habituated at that time. And uh, he always maintained that apes could acquire language if they were in the right environment. And there were many scientists there who studied conditioned, I guess, conditioned behavior, you might say, in apes, trying to find out the limits of apes' intelligence. And there were all kinds of stories always coming out of the ape lab about how apes would do things like in a discrimination task where the ape would get a piece of banana if the ape chose the right thing. There were some apes who would just store the bananas up, and when the researchers ran out of bananas, they would keep doing the trials, and they would give the researcher back the banana. Oh, wow. And, of course, uh, Gua and Donald were raised about that time, and Vicky a little earlier, and then Vicky a little bit later, who were the first uh, chimpanzees raised by scientists in the home. And in the case of Donald and Gua, a chimpanzee and her brother were raised, her human brother were raised together. And scientists were trying to determine how much of our behavior is cultural and how much of our behavior is innate. So that was going on while while I was a young child. And then how did you come um, from that early introduction as a child, which is really interesting to hear the story about, which we'll get to later on, your, your methods later, where you spent just, in, compared to many researchers, an enormous amount of time with the bonobos you ended up focusing most of your career on. So it's interesting in light of the, in light of the, the early anecdotes where these, these trainers at the circus or at the zoo similarly spent, in a very different way, not in a scientific way, but a really lot of time with these animals getting to know them, um, that that catalyzed that interest in part. How did you then go from this early childhood interest to studying this in an academic setting? Well, I... Uh first began to study psychology, and I became very interested in behaviorism and the seeming ability of behaviorism, if properly utilized, to control all kinds of negative human behaviors. And I kind of idealized B.F. Skinner and uh, was very, very fascinated with Walden, too, and hoped that I could do some kind of research that would help make the world a saner, more harmonious place through what I saw then as as techniques of behaviorism. And I uh, also became very interested in developmental psychology and cognitive psychology, which seemed so different from behaviorism. But because I was the oldest of seven children, I had the opportunity to see many younger children grow up in my family. And I knew that they learned by observational learning and almost kind of an amorphous kind of learning. And I didn't know where that fit within behaviorism, so I I studied developmental psychology. And the earliest uh, attempts to find out if children learn things first by color or first by form when their brain first began to see things and got fascinated with the relationship between developmental psychology, which is sort of how the how the brain comes into awareness or cognizance of the world, and behaviorism, which is how the outside reinforcement structures of the world begin to lay down their programs upon that brain. And I uh, was fortunate to get a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship, and I was on my way to Harvard to study with B.F. Skinner. When I visited a friend in Norman, Oklahoma, and I just went on campus to look around And I saw there was going to be a psychology course where a chimpanzee was going to be at the psych psych one course. So I didn't, I just remembered my childhood experience and I wanted to see why a psychologist was studying a chimpanzee. And I went to the psych one class and Roger Fouts came on the stage. There were about 300 people in the class and he came on the stage of the platform of the class with a a chimpanzee named Bowie who was about three and a half years of age. And he said, Bowie is learning signs, and he demonstrated a variety of signs by holding up objects, and Bowie made the sign. And I was amazed because I suddenly realized that there was an organism that wasn't human 
that that could show at least developmental signs of language, but he was also being trained to do it by behavioral techniques, which children didn't require. And so I was just fascinated at what was happening to this chimpanzee's mind. And Roger Fouts said that he needed assistance at what was called a chimp farm, and I couldn't imagine what a chimp farm would be. And he invited any of the people in that class to come to the chimp farm and learn more about what was going on there. So I was in a position where I could stay there a little longer, and I took him up on that invitation, and I went out to the chimp farm, and I saw chimps that there were thirty between 30 and 40 chimps there. Some had been reared in circuses. Some had been reared in rodeos. Some had been reared in human homes from the day of birth and were still in those human homes and had never seen another uh, chimpanzee in their lives. Some had been wild-caught and had horrible experiences before they came to lemons. There was one very striking chimpanzee, an adult male, who had been reared in a children's zoo, and he had stayed in the children's zoo until he was an adult, and the zoo then began to close down, but he had been handled and interacted with children from the time he was a baby, and he was the most mild-mannered adult male who seemed to still have a, you could have any child around him in perfect safety, but if you tried to put a domineering human adult male around him, he did not like that. I was just remembering there's a kind of mesmerizing passage in your book, Kanzi, where you talk about an encounter you had with um, Bowie. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Bowie, where you started to to doubt whether the methods of trial and error were giving you the kind of access into um, Bowie's mind, so to speak, or, or enabling you to analyze what he might be thinking. And you went out into his enclosure and um, had an encounter with him where he spontaneously made a sign that hadn't been part of his training repertoire. It was, I think, a 360 sign. Yes. Yes, I, I, I know what you're talking about. So what was it about that that, that seemed to um, defy the trial and error paradigm that Skinner formalized for psychology? Well, Bowie was one of five or six chimpanzees that lived on an island And Dr. Roger Fouts would go over every day and put one or more of those chimpanzees in a rowboat and row to the other side of the island and then walk with each young chimpanzee up to a small cage about four feet by six feet. And my job as a volunteer there was to sit in the cage with that chimpanzee and teach it signs. And the way Roger had learned to teach Washoe signs was to mold her hands into a particular sign, to take his hands and put them on hers and show her how to make that sign in the presence of the object. And then if she, then after he had her make the sign, she would get a raisin or an M&M. And that would be repeated for 50 trials, 100 trials, 200 trials, however many trials it required. And as you faded your hands from the molding, so you did less and less molding, And when you held up the object, whether it was a peanut or a blanket or a key, the chimpanzee would look at the object and make the sign. And I realized that that wasn't quite the way my son was learning language. He was learning language at the same time. And I didn't really know how meaning would come from that kind of pairing. I had also had a background in what we call paired associate learning, where people learn associations between different words or between signs and words or between objects and words. But when people do that, they already understand what meaning is. Uh, But they were using this kind of technique with Washoe, and these young chimps, and I didn't know whether these young chimps had any meaning to the sign or not, So one day I was in this cage doing this with Bowie, and he kept wanting to tickle and play, and some of the signs we were learning were about tickling, and we couldn't really chase in the cage, but we could kind of move around. And so we were playing, and I wondered, could he just understand a gesture if I made a gesture that was iconic, and I had a meaning behind that gesture? So I thought he he had a couple of times played with me by hanging upside down from the top of the cage, and he'd want me to tickle him under his chin. 
So I thought, I wonder if I could convey to him that I would like him to do that. So I pointed to the top of the cage and then made a circular motion with the two index fingers on my hands that showed you turn your body around and and hang up side down from the cage. And he looked at me and he just immediately did it. He understood that sign, which no one had ever made to him the first time I made it. So I realized there was a different kind of intelligence operating there than I was trying to connect through this molding method and slowly moving my hands away. Your early work then was with, was it sounds like with chimpanzees primarily, but then um, you shifted later to focus on bonobos, which are a distinct species from chimpanzees. Why focus on bonobos in particular? And you, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that this was largely motivated your interest in apes in general in terms of how humans can be a better species as part of one of many species here on Earth. But I wonder, I wonder if you could tell us some about how bonobos are different than the chimpanzees that you've been describing, and then also um, what your research has looked like with those bonobos, like Kanzi. Yes, I can. Uh, but I want to emphasize that uh, with regard to bonobos and chimpanzees, it wasn't just that I went from buoy and signing to straight to bonobos. I worked uh, a considerable amount with Lana, who was a chimpanzee that used a keyboard system, one of the first ones who was able to use symbols and sequence them in a syntactical way. And then I worked with Sherman and Austin, who were the first chimpanzees to be able to use symbols with each other. And in all of this moving forward, I was moving intellectually away from any kind of uh, systematic training, sort of, sort of slowly. But one of the main critiques of the field of ape language was that even though you are showing that they're able to do novel things on trial one, like buoy, or later on do many more complex novel linguistic things with Lana or Sherman and Austin, there must be something in their background where they were conditioned and they were trained, and this is not like humans, and we don't understand it. So by the time I began to work with bonobos, I was very sensitive to those critiques, which I'm now spending a great deal of time writing papers answering those critiques at a different level because our our understanding of, of language is so much more sophisticated than it was at that time that it's only now that those critiques can really be answered at the level which they should. But at that point, I was answering them by simply creating conditions that would allow an ape to acquire language in the same way a child would allow would be acquired allowed to acquire language if they were in a languaged world. Because you can't compare what an ape can do with what a child can do unless you give them a similar environment. And the only other option would have been to give a child a hor- horribly restricted environment, in which case we know the child would not have acquired language. Could you tell us a few stories about Kanzi Sue for people who know very little about bonobos or about Kanzi to sort of illustrate just how eerily human-like um, bonobos are, that you've written that they're far more human-like than other apes in their anatomy and in their social behavior and in their vocalizations and in their mental abilities and in their um, infant care, et cetera. Could you tell us a few stories about bonobos and um, and about Kanzi in, in particular that might illustrate that? Yes, I, I will. I want to emphasize that There is a range of characteristics between bonobos and chimpanzees that we understand now are cultural, and not just cultural in the sense of tool use, but cultural in the sense of how we socially engage one another. So when I talk about the differences between humans and and chimpanzees and humans and bonobos, I'm really talking about what I believe to be cultural differences that are carried forward across time through epigenetic means, and eventually the biology serves as kind of a weak anchor, but it's the behavior, the cultural behavior that is evolving. So what we consider human behavior, chimpanzee behavior, bonobo behavior, we should really be thinking more of as different cultural behaviors that have been in existence longer than, say, the different cultural behaviors in our species. So I'd like to get a little bit away from this speciest way of thinking because it's interfering with our ability to understand the true relationships between ourselves and other species. But I will address the question with that caveat. 
And so I will say that if you look at the anatomy of a, a bonobo, it's much more gracile than that of a chimpanzee. If you look at the vocalizations of a bonobo, they're much higher pitched, they're more variable, more complex, they occur throughout the day in a great variety of patterns among bonobos, whereas chimpanzees are typically quieter and very, very low kinds of vocalizations that are often associated with food, but not so many other complex situations. I think there are reasons for that other than the chimpanzee's inability to do it, but I, I won't go into those at this point. But you, you first of all, you see the bonobos as gracile. You see them as far more upright. You see them as far, far more vocal with a very elaborate vocal system. You see that male-female relationships are remarkably different. The uh, males are never domineering over the females. The males and females have things that very clearly look like uh, they're kind of infatuated with one another. They have things that look like they're uh, working out equalities between one another, and those equalities are always taking into account the infants in the group. In fact, if you watch bonobos very long, you become convinced that the whole behavior of the group is always oriented around keeping these babies happy. The males keep them happy. The females keep them happy. The females work together to keep them happy. The males work with the females to keep them happy. They have millions of ways of keeping babies happy. But when the babies become about five or six, then the males start orienting them toward understanding the proper role behavior of a male, and the females take over that responsibility in the females. And this is very much like what happens in, in human tribal societies and, of course, even in our modern society. And these different kinds of role expectations are clearly taught to the young bonobos. So what's going on is clearly a cultural thing. You can call it a bonobo thing, but it's clearly a cultural thing. If the bonobos are not reared like that, and they're reared in, in zoos as very, very young babies, they're brought to zoos and they don't really have their language and they don't really have their culture, you will find, in many cases, bonobos being very aggressive. But bonobos in their culture don't, they're not really aggressive unless somebody has violated a cultural norm. So if a bonobo may, for example, bite off the finger of another bonobo, it's like a punishment in the same sense that some human groups will chop a finger off of a person in the culture because they have violated a cultural norm or put them in prison or whatever. Bonobos don't have prisons. And the worst thing you could do to a bonobo would be to exclude it from the group. Bonobos cannot stand any lack of forgiveness or any exclusion from the social group. So, so they always travel in, in large groups in the forest. I, when I was in the forest, I saw groups as small as 15 or 20 or groups as large as 150, which you would never see in chimpanzees. So to coordinate a group of that size, it, you can't do it without language. There's no other way. You couldn't even coordinate a group of 100 humans moving through the forest and agreeing to where they were going to go without language, without a very, very complex language. So I can talk for an immense amount of time about the differences between chimpanzees and bonobos, but I, I'm firmly convinced that they are cultural differences and that we've not observed nearly enough group of groups of bonobos are chimpanzees to understand the vast cultural differences that are extant even between today's chimpanzees and today's bonobos. We, we have only a handful of field studies of bonobos and a few more of chimpanzees, but they're all uh, in the same region. And we're just beginning to understand that to determine what a group of chimpanzees or bonobos are doing is as complex as determining what a group of humans are doing. And if you don't integrate yourself into that group in the way an ethnographer would integrate themselves into a human group, and if you don't make attempts to learn 
the kinship structure, the hierarchical structure to establish some kind of system of communication. If you look only at the outside with a checklist of how many foods they eat and how many times the males interact with the females, you really are not going to understand the culture of chimpanzees or bonobos. That's that's really fascinating, Sue. And it makes it makes me think about in your book and in some of your previous writing that you've you've talked about how in your work with Kanzi and other bonobos in labs in the U.S., you've been creating what you call a pan-homo culture or a shared culture between both you and the other researchers and the bonobos themselves, which I found very moving and and, and very exciting. And you, you seem, to, to your point about needing to effectively approach these relationships as we do with other humans as an ethnographer, it was very, very interesting to me. This this methodology of you know needing to spend really to understand an animal, needing to know the animal, and needing to spend time with the animal is really unusual. Um, and so I wonder if you can if you could describe your methodology and the way in which you approach understanding the bonobo and sort of how that differs from the traditional approach. Well, yes, I I will. I have to say that my methodology slowly has evolved across time as I've understood the complexity of the organism with which I'm engaging, and that I have kind of always been behind, not really understanding Lana correctly, not really understanding Bowie and Bruno correctly, not really understanding Sherman and Austin correctly, not really understanding the bonobos correctly. It's like they've pulled me along because I've always I've always tried to be faithful to the scientific method, but faithful to the results and faithful to the subjects. And it's been a tension in my own life all along. And I'll describe, because you asked for, and I haven't really given you one yet, an interesting example with Kanzi that helped me see how far behind I was and how I needed to move the methodology in another direction. And then I'll describe how that methodology did move in the direction to where it has arrived at this point in time. When Kanzi was, I think he was about seven or eight, and I had already realized that he could understand novel sentences that were being said to him, either novel at the keyboard or novel with spoken English. And I had already realized that he understood. I'm sorry to interrupt. Can we just, can we just so our listeners have a sense of what the keyboard looks like and what it contains? These are, there are nouns on it, verbs, there's symbols for, for words, right? They're symbols for all kinds of words. Initially, I left off symbols like and and the and it and there and he and she, all of those small words, functional grammatical words that you can't point. They're not a point addable, but they're an extremely important component of language. I left those off his keyboard because they were too hard to teach, I thought, and I didn't know how to test if he knew them, and I didn't think that they were needed. I understood much later on their value and function. And at this point in time, those kinds of words were not on his keyboard, but places for names of places in the forest, all kinds of objects that he liked to play with, all kinds of tools that he liked to use, words for going swimming, words for making fire, words for tickling and playing, uh, and words for colors and things that he could be tested on, and words for food and words for drinks all of those kinds of things, and names of individuals, names of other apes, names of humans occupied a board, and they were geometrical symbols like a, a circle in a square or a circle in a straight line or two cross lines or two parallel lines, and he could touch those symbols, and touching those symbols produced a vocal word, or if the keyboard was outdoors, it was just silent, but we could see the symbols that he touched. And the basic initial method was... If we wanted to communicate anything to Kanzi, we tried to do it at the keyboard, and we also said it in English, and then we lived the life of doing the things that we were discussing with Kanzi, and if he wanted to ask for a particular thing, uh, he could. So life started out with the keyboard integrated and spoken English integrated into everything we did. But the day was always a functional day. We always had places to go and things to do that differed every single day, just as uh, your life with a, a child might differ every single day. And we had a number of people that spent time with Kanzi in the forest oriented around 
the use of this board. But that slowly morphed as more bonobos were born and the group size increased so that it became far more complex when you didn't have just a kanzi and just a keyboard. You had a social group. So by the time I give the example, Kanzi is already seven or eight years old. He already has a number of siblings he interacts with. He also interacts with chimpanzees who live in a building nearby. He interacts every day with his mother, Matata, who came to us when she was seven or eight years old with full knowledge of bonobo culture in the wild and was, I think, the main influence in his life and is now the main influence in the lives of all of the other bonobos by design because I never wanted to rear an ape alone and I never wanted to rear an ape to be a human being. I wanted to understand culture, I wanted to understand language, and I wanted to understand it in as natural a dynamic as possible. So I'm thinking I'm doing this, I'm thinking I'm (laughs) quite good at it, and uh, video has become a great part of our life because we uh, videotape things we do during the day, and Kanzi loves watching them at night. We videotape uh, mythical beings in the forest that run around dressed up in suits, and we have a whole mythology that's in our video. We communicate about things that are mythological, things that happened in different spaces and times, and I'm learning that bonobos are capable of this. And I'm going to go away and give a talk, and because I'm going to be away giving a talk on Kanzi's birthday, some of the staff decides to make a video that they're going to show Kanzi on his birthday, and it has mythical creatures in it. It has the lab, what's happening. It's just made up in the minds of these people for something they would think Kanzi would like. They're very They've made many of these videos, and they have a good idea of what's fun TV for Kanzi. So they come into my office, and they say, Sue, you're going to be gone on Kanzi's birthday. Will you say something for him on the camera so that we can uh, show him you on the birthday party we're going to have for Kanzi? So I'm in the middle of preparing my talk and my paper, and I look up and I say, Oh, hi, Kanzi. I'm so sorry I'm going to be gone on your birthday. I'll miss you on your birthday. I'm going to go give a talk to tell these people about you. And when I come back, I'll bring you a present. And I'm sorry I'll miss, but I'll bring you a present when I come back and have a wonderful birthday. And then they go on out of the lab and they finish the tape, and I focus on my talk, and I don't think a thing more about it. (laughs) And then I come back three or four days later, and I walk into the area where Kanzi is, and he kind of looks at me, and then he immediately starts displaying at me, running around and banging and pounding on everything, and he's he's clearly upset. And this is not the way Kanzi normally treats me. And I'm like, well, what is wrong with you, Kanzi? Did something bad happen while I was gone? Did people not treat you right? And I ask him those questions, and he gets even madder at me. And he's just running around banging like he's totally out of control. And I'm just at a loss because he's never behaved that way to me. I have no idea why he's mad at me. I have no idea what's wrong with him. hes I don't feel that he's going to attack me, but he's angry and I don't know what to do, you know. And then suddenly this video flashes through my mind and I realize that I have come back and I've not said happy birthday to him and I've not brought a present. And I think, could this be it? (laughs) And I say, "Uh, Kanzi, uh, are you mad because I forgot your birthday? And he goes, wah, 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 and nods his head over and over and stops immediately displaying and I said, uh, are you wanting your present? And he goes, wah, wah, wah. Well, I didn't even have a present. I was so bad I even <laughs> forgot to get one. So I said, well, I'll be right back. And I ran out and I ran to the store and I got him some, I don't know, some silly thing. It didn't really even matter. It mattered that I was sorry and that I had forgot, and that I went away, and that I got something, and that I came back, and I came back, and I said, oh, Gonzi, I'm so sorry. I forgot your birthday, and here's this present. It was just some little thing, you know, and oh, he was so happy, and he hugged me, you know, and so that's the kind of uh, 
constant cognitive reorganization that I had to go through in in my scientific career in order to be honest to the science as much as I could and honest to the bonobos that were metamorphizing in front of me every single day. That's an incredible, incredible story, Sue. And, and, and I'm, I'm very moved by sort of the profound scope of the way in which you approach Kanzi and the bonobos in that it seems like many times in animal intelligence experiments or especially perhaps in language experiments, the main question that researchers are asking is how human, how much, how intelligent in the way that humans are intelligent is this animal and how much like us is this animal? Whereas it seems like your approach is very much one that's focused on understanding the animal and understanding how we can know more about the world and even asking big questions like, do they have myths? And what are those myths? And is there an equivalent of religion? Um, and how, you know, how do they see the world and how do they see us? Um, it, which are just really profound, big questions that I think are often completely lost or, or bypassed in discussions of language that focus on um, you know, small things of syntax. Right. I mean, and I'm struck, too, by it reminds me of your story of, of watching the animals having to jump through hoops um, and this idea of we recognize an aspect of our own minds or our own language, such as syntax, and then we say, okay, let's see if the animal's vocal is, vocal system has that or we recognize something about our own culture, our own um, some feature of our minds, and we basically project it onto the animal um, as what I understood part of what she was getting at. And it strikes me, too, that as you've started to point out, um, it sounds like you were in a situation where you were at once trying to understand um, a very different form of life and make contact with it, but at the same time trying to make yourself understood within the idiom of traditional science. And it sounds like you you said that you experienced kind of a tension sometimes um, in that direction. So what do you think were, was at stake in, in some of the controversies that came to surround um, Kanzi's language use? Like Steven Pinker had published and Chomsky had published saying, basically, whatever this is, we can't call it language. And it's also worth, in addition to language, pointing out that, um, as I think you've written, Sue, that these experiments couldn't be recreated today, probably, and that you spent so much time with the animals in a very intimate way, and that the face-to-face -face contact um, and the daily contact was so critical to the, your insights, whereas now that's moderated by physical distance and, in some cases, masks that the researchers have to wear. So just to add, just to add a little additional context to, to Lindsay's question. Well, those are lots of big questions all in one question. So, Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> um, Feel free to take it in whatever direction um, fits. I was so fortunate to have landed at the University of Oklahoma Primate Center with this huge variety of primates. And my first job as a graduate student was to work with Lucy, one of the ones who was raised in human homes from, a day, from the day of birth without ever any contact with other apes. And I spent probably two to three hours every day with Lucy. When I wasn't with Lucy, I was watching a group of mother-infant chimpanzees. All of the mothers had been wild-reared, and they were all taking care of their babies, and so it was a mother-infant nursery. So I got to see baby infant chimpanzees being reared by their wild reared mothers. And then I got to see Lucy being reared in a human home. And that focused my interest on what, you what you're calling these larger questions uh, because of the difference was so great. And I couldn't attribute that difference to chimpanzee-ness. Uh, and in the midst of all of this, Lucy was being taught language, sign language, by the method that I describe. What I didn't understand at that time was that Lucy had a very high comprehension of spoken language by being reared in a chimpanzee, by being reared in a human home. But I was not to speak with her because in sign language, you're quiet. So I would go to Lucy's home and try to teach her these signs when 
I didn't really understand that I should be talking to her because she had such a high comprehension of language. So Lucy spent a lot of time showing me the kinds of things that she could understand. She looked at magazines. I I don't even know now. She might have been able to read some of them. But she would show me different pictures that meant things to her. She would make tea and coffee for me. She could, she, she, I could take her anywhere outdoors without a lead, and she was already swollen and in puberty. I was advised that, you know, I could take her anywhere in the town of Norman, Oklahoma, and she could point to me and show me where she used to live. And I had a little MG Sprite, and she just showed me every place to go. I was told I could take her to 60 acres outside of Norman and just let her get out of the car and go wherever she wanted to go in the forest. And when I got ready to go, if she wasn't back, I could honk my horn and she would come in the car. She did all of those things with me, and and I was kind of new to her. And then I would watch these wild-caught chimps who had been captive probably three to four years of age with their babies in a small cage all living together, and those babies had to spend much of their time clinging to the mother. And Lucy, of course, had never had to cling. She had always been carried, so she started using her hands in a very, very different way. And that ended up focusing me on on the larger questions. But as I as I got my degree and as I went to the Yerkes Primate Center and Lana was starting to learn language, uh, there was a huge reaction in the field, both against what Roger Fouts and the gardeners had said about Washoe and in what Dwayne was saying, Dwayne Rumbaugh was saying about Lana. And because we had always defined humanness as language, of course, there's lots of other things that we as humans do that apes don't do. We, we have different kinds of social groups. We walk bipedally. We use tools in a very, very complex way. We make fire. Uh, and we can probably, humans that don't acquire language can do most of those things. But we had always defined humanness as being language. So linguists stepped in and they started for the first time to define language. And everything that you did to try to answer their definition, they would up their definition in a greater degree of complexity. So it was just above what apes, what you had just demonstrated. So they would conclude that because you had demonstrated skill A, it really required skill B to have language. And if you demonstrated skill B, it really required skill C. So it just got into a 20 to 30 year uh, game of redefining language in a way that did not apply to anything that an ape did. And it separated language completely from culture and languages embedded within communication and culture. But linguists took language out of culture and studied it as though it was some kind of little abstract diamond that wasn't related to anything else we did. And it existed as a little diamond in our brain. And this diamond had the ability to reflect surfaces back and forth and create this crystalline structure, which we called grammar, out of which everything else then came. And I was very aware that it was life, it was culture itself that was gluing together what we did in language. But as it glued it together, language had this ability to rise above culture and to create these imagined worlds, to create these things we could do with uh, our tapes out in the woods or to create a Sesame Street. With language, we could create any imagined world that we wanted to create. And that was clearly the key to language. And I learned that apes clearly had that capacity. There's a story I remember from um, uh, Kanzi's Primal Language where a linguist, uh, I'm sorry, he may have been a philosopher. He was a Swedish philosopher, um, but interested in the question of language and had been somewhat skeptical of um, your findings with Kanzi and Panbanisha um, and the other bonobos. And he actually traveled um, all the way from Sweden to Iowa to go see for himself whether these beings had what he would want to call language. And in the book, he describes how almost as soon as he arrived, one of the bonobos 
use the keyboard to tell him to be quiet. And he was surprised by feelings of shame. Um, And then shortly after that, he made the mistake of touching the hand of one of the young bonobos, only to have that bonobo's mother run up to him, hold up the keyboard, and point her finger at the symbol for monster while looking at him. And in the book, he describes the sense of vertigo that that encounter gave him um, and how it very much shook his, his initial kind of framework that had motivated him to come all the way to the lab. So we were also wondering to what extent this question of this kind of abiding controversy over what language is and who gets to define it has contributed to the struggle to keep the experiment going as you had initially defined it. Our relationship to human, uh, to non-human apes, is a complex thing. We define humanness mostly by what other beings, typically apes, are not. So we've always thought apes were not this, not this, not this, not this, and we are special. We, this is called the anthropocentric view. And it's kind of a, a need that humans have to feel like we are special Science has challenged that, you know, with Darwinian theory, this idea that we were special because God created us special had to be put aside. And so language became, in a way, the replacement for religion. We're special because we have this ability to speak and we can create these imagined worlds and we can create another God, which becomes science. Uh So we put these protective, linguists and other scientists put these protective boundaries because we as a species feel this need to be unique. And I'm not opposed to that. I just happened to find out that it wasn't true. So so how did I convey that to people? Well, as long as the focus was on language as an object, language is something you write down and you look at the relationships between different parts of one sentence— It could be studied in the same way that one might study an atom, and one might find out wonderful things about an atom, but if you don't study what an atom does in a molecule, and you don't study what a molecule does in a cell, and you don't study what a cell does in a body, you you just really don't have the larger picture. So when you look at how language acts in the sum and substance of life, you really quickly understand that these bonobos have language and there's just no argument about it. And that's what the philosopher Per Segredal came to our lab, the, the one that mentioned that he felt shame. He came to our lab to try to understand. He had read the literature. We had talked with him. He knew what we were saying. But still, when you experience it, everybody that's ever experienced it really says it's life-changing. You can read about it. You can think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if there were animals that could do this? And then you see animals doing it, and it's like, oh, they can't be animal and do that. That's not what an animal is. They are behaving as with every characteristic that every human being you've ever known, maybe not quite as sophisticated, but every basic essence of humanness you've ever known, anything you've ever thought about being human, they can exhibit some uh, aspect of it and they can exhibit it in a different combination every time that's clearly coming from them and not coming from Sue, not coming from conditioning. It's coming straight from them, and they're evaluating you, they're thinking about you, they're judging you just the way a person would. They're not a quiet, silent animal that you can put a lead on or do something. If you have a lead on them, they've agreed to it, and they're agreeing to stay with you, and they could take it away anytime they want. It's just for show. They are as competent in their relationship with you as you are in their relationship with them, it has to be a relationship of communication and equality, or it just doesn't exist. And in most cases, it doesn't exist because humans don't extend that to them. When you came into our facility and you extended that to them, it it's not any question. They have that capability. And in the meeting yesterday where Peter Gabriel spoke, uh, he said... I'm I'm sorry. You're talking about just for listeners who aren't sure. You're talking about a forum at Cornell University, right? 
yes, where uh, Peter Gabriel spoke live, and we showed some of the video of Peter playing music. And, of course, Peter's, he called his keyboard, as opposed to the one with cymbals on it, the, the musical keyboard. And he said, I'm much more eloquent in being able to communicate through music than I am through language, which I think is a beautiful statement. And the bonobos were able to communicate with Peter through a keyboard much better than I could. They could engage in a musical dialogue that was co-constructed. I could engage in a linguistic dialogue, but Peter chose to use the the musical route because he he could play with them. He could co-play, and he understood that he was co-playing and that music was being co-created. He was interested in my ability to communicate with the keyboard, the symbolic keyboard, and he said people would have to be blind, deaf, and dumb not to understand that this is not real language. But I wanted to know what they could do through a musical keyboard because their language itself is very musical and beautiful in many ways. And so they created a kind of, he created a kind of connection with them that I could not create. But in in summary, the problem scientifically has been that linguists and psychologists want to so crystallize and objectify this behavior and take it out of its ordinary context and look at it through a microscope rather than just being and understanding it before you start to do that. Because unless you have the understanding of what a body is, you're not really going to understand how the cell functions in the body. So it's fine to focus on the cell, but you really need to understand that it came from a body. And it's fine to focus on some little tiny aspect of language, but you really need to understand how language is functioning in the social, cognitive, cultural domain and the the living being thing which you're taking apart when you try to study it. And that part, that's the part that has been missed in the current scientific approach. And if it's ever really understood or grasped, there will be no more conflict. That's really interesting, Sue. And it's interesting, too, that the sort of the, the love or the communion or the relationship that you mentioned as being necessary in many ways to understand the animal and to understand the language at all is now often criticized by academia. And uh, you're supposed to have you know, a very clinical, very almost cold approach to these animals to understand their language, despite the fact that the whole point of wanting to understand the language in the first place is presumably to be able to connect to other creatures that we share the earth with. So, so it's interesting that in, in many ways, I think the, the love of the other creatures extending beyond just humans and the language are interrelated and perhaps even necessary for one another. Well, what you say is very true. I think the rejection has come through the realization that an ape raised in a human culture has the potential to become very human-like and human culture isn't ready for that. So part of the let's not do anything human around an ape, let's not give them any chance to be human, and that's bad science if we do, is the feeling that there's no place for them if they become human. The only place for them we've created right now is in the natural world, and we don't really understand them satisfactorily in the natural world, but they it's quite right that they should be free. They should not be in captivity. But because they share 90, almost 99% of our genome, you just know from that figure alone that being that close to us, they don't have a lot of innate behavior. And these things that, oh, chimpanzees groom this way and chimpanzees talk this way and chimpanzees share this way. And you learn these few things and you talk chimpanzee is totally wrong. They are as cultural as we are. They have not focused on tools and fire to the extent that we have. And because we have made a material culture around ourselves, we are now able through food and industry and technology to accommodate 8 billion people on the planet. But as we've done that, we've moved away completely from our connection with nature. And we have created a world that only we can inhabit. And they have stayed in contact in a sustainable way with 
the natural world. And many of the oral legends say that we used to live together and they made that decision. Both chimpanzees and bonobos made that decision on their own. We never gave credence before to any of the oral history, but people are starting to realize now that these oral histories in other cultures can be validated. For example, oral histories can describe geological events that happened 10,000 years ago, and now with modern science, we can, we can say that that was carried forward 10,000 years in human language, and it was actually happened. So it's quite possible that our oral histories of the way humans and apes used to interact have equal validity. And in that case, we did live together. We did have a kind of an interaction. We did share a language, but we moved apart, and they made a conscious choice to go a different path, a sustainable path, but not the path that could lead to 8 billion. But I think that during that time, because they're intelligent, they're competent, we changed and they changed, but what we don't understand is if they went on the non-material path where their non-material, spiritual, different ways of relating to one another changed in a myriad of cultural ways that we have no comprehension of at this point in time and that we viewed it as kind of this linear progression to where we are that puts us at the pinnacle. Well, we're only at the pinnacle if we continue to survive and be successful. And as we've reached this pinnacle, we've also created a society where we're turning over more and more technology to AI. We're starting to get AI making decisions about, you know, what... Uh, Instruments of war become become activated, and it's totally possible to think of war now being a sort of video game on both sides where AI programs make the decisions as to which missiles are to be fired to destroy the other country without any human input because human input is too slow, so you got to have the best AI programs on each side so we kill each other before we even know we're killing each other. You know, and we're moving away from social interactions into, you know, a whole realm of just technical interactions. There's great good to this, and there's great danger. We're going through an hourglass of time right now, and if we are not successful, we, we will not have been the, the more highly evolved species that we would like to think we have been. In order to be the more highly evolved species, we must take what we have now learned and have an enlightened kind of it in con consciousness. And I think that the different cultures of apes, particularly what I know about bonobo culture, is something that could help us become very much more compassionate, very much more forgiving, very much more understanding and able to relate to each other at a much deeper level and to get this shell around us kind of knocked down so we're we're communicating straight, mind to mind, heart to heart, the way I experience bonobos doing. And I love to be a bonobo and in with bonobos and around bonobos for that experience because it's not it's not prevalent every day in my human society. So if I miss anything and being denied the opportunity to be with the bonobos, it's that uh, higher, enlightened, compassionate consciousness that I was so very fortunate to be able to learn about and experience. And I would like to think that this whole human shouldn't interact with bonobos, it's because well, maybe we shouldn't make bonobos like us. Maybe that is a big problem. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to the very best of our ability, whether it's through technology or at least a few people trying to integrate themselves into a bonobo culture to come back and tell us about it. We shouldn't do everything we can to learn about our closest living relatives and where they really are and what they can do. We've already learned that we underestimated other races. For centuries, we thought that 
primitive groups in Africa didn't even have real language. All they could do was use concrete words, and if they had clicks and things in their sounds, it wasn't real language, and they didn't have real culture. It's taken us at least 150 years to get beyond that. I don't think we have that time to understand bonobo culture. I, I think we need to reach out and we need to try to do it for our own good. And in the backdrop of all this, Kanzi is now 38 years old and he's still in the Iowa facility that we described at the opening. Um, and as you as you mentioned, that you no longer have access to Kanzi, which is a complicated controversy that we, we don't um, have time to get into, but, but in some comes down to the fact that you use these methods that have sort of gone out of vogue basically with scientists who who think there needs to be a much more clinical uh, approach to interacting with these animals. It's interesting in that the motivation for you to be reunited with Kanzi seems to be twofold in a way, and that first, as you've spoken so beautifully about, clearly there's a tremendous scientific purpose to understand and to um, save this unique culture that you and Kanzi and the other bonobos and researchers have co-created in Iowa and elsewhere. But there's also the the second purpose, which is seems to boil down more or less to just love and that you've loved this animal and um, spent so much time with him that to be separated from him is really, uh, it, it seems to me would really be a heartbreak in many ways. Um, and so I wonder if you could be reunited with Kanzi right now. And we know Kanzi, um, by the way, from other researchers, has been calling for you on the keyboard and pressing the pressing the symbol for Sue. And clearly you, you're still thinking about him. But I wonder if you could be reunited with Kanzi right now, what would you what would you say to him? Well, I, I want to correct one thing uh, that the people who have Kanzi now have said, and it's been reported on Iowa Public Radio and widely circulated that Kanzi is the only living ape with any kind of language and there will be no more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there are five bonobos there now. They all have various degrees of ability to comprehend human language and to produce sounds that are human-like and could be interpreted with modern AI programs. They all have a, a, a language, a bonobo language, which Matata taught them, which is musical and very complex, and I can only understand parts of it, but I can assure you they are linguistic apes in no doubt, and because they were taught language by Matata, if they were given opportunity to communicate with bonobos in the wild, I believe they would communicate a linguistic interaction. And that while I have a close relationship with Kanzi, it's not any closer than the relationship I have with Tico and with Inyota and with Alikia, possibly a little bit closer than the relationship I have with the one other bonobo, Maisha, because I didn't spend quite as much time with him, but I respect him immensely. And that what exists there is a linguistic group. What was built was a linguistic group with many more bonobos who unfortunately did not survive. But it still exists and if I were to go back, it would not be just with Kanzi. It would be with all of those bonobos. And the first thing that would happen is just happiness. Happiness, an opportunity to be together if we were allowed that opportunity. If I could actually, when, when I went one time, all they did was over and over and over and over and over ask me to come in. Come in this door. Come in this door. Go over here. Can't you go around that way? Won't they let you go this way? Come, 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 until they took the keyboard away from them, and then they kept gesturing. So they want me. They wanted me in there. I would probably go in there, and they would groom me and hug me, and there would just be a time where you're just together. You don't really want to even talk. And... And and then it would probably be very hard to talk about why we had to be separated and why things have to be the way they are now. They would want some explanation of that. It would be very difficult to talk about that. Uh, their main concern would be, you know, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen tomorrow? What can we do? Where can we go? And I, I don't know what answers I would be able to give them, but it would very much be a question of where life is going from this point in time. And I, at right now, in this particular uh, situation, I, I wouldn't be able to 
give Kanji the information or the others the information that they would like to have. I would have to say, humans are in charge. I don't know. This is what I would like to see, but I can't make any promises. Well, Dr. Sue Savage-Rumbaugh, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you to Dr. Savage Rumba, and, and thank you, too, to our wonderful producers, uh, Ryan McAvoy here at the Yale Broadcast Studio, as well as Bert Autumn Reed at the Cornell Broadcast Studio and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. Um, we would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals to hear more from Sue and our other guests and um, leave us a review on Yale University's iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.